For all my women out there, I just want you to know that you are a boss. Women have to be at the table for technology and innovation. And if not, we'll simply create our own. Don't feel like you shouldn't be a part of the tech space just because there aren't many women in the room. That's exactly why we need you to be there. Girl, don't forget to rep your set in these tech spaces, AKA rep your culture. You are the face of technology and the face of the future. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Women in Tech with Ariana podcast with me, Ariana, as your favorite host. For those of you, it's your first time tuning in. Welcome to an amazing community of women in tech where we talk about the latest news in technology, hear stories from women in tech from all around the world and share tangible resources and tools like access to funding. We give away free materials to help you learn how to code. We talk about job opportunities, conferences of the year that we think you should attend and so much more. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button guys and leave a review in the the podcast app or on the website you are using to listen to this episode. This month, guys, is a super special month because it's Women's History Month and the Women in Tech with Ariana podcast has partnered with Manning Publications for our Blazing Trails podcast series. Every week of this month, we are featuring two special guests to come on the show and talk about their journey through technology, share advice to our listeners, and of course, we have giveaways for you guys. So every Monday and Wednesday of this month, we are publishing new episodes with some of the most powerful women in technology from around the world. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and tell them to tune in as we celebrate Women for Women's History Month. So today, guys, we have a super special guest, Cornelia Davis. Cornelia is the Chief Technology Officer of WeWorks, the leading provider of operational GitOps. Cornelia has more than 25 years of experience as a software technologist and helps to drive technical strategy, product development, and a go-to market and to help customers leverage said technology to further their business goals. Cornelia is the author of Cloud Native Patterns, Designing Change Tolerant Software. The book serves as your guide to developing strong applications that thrive in the dynamic, distributed, virtual world of the cloud. The book presents a mental model for cloud native applications, along with the patterns, practices, and tooling that set them apart. Cornelia, we are so excited to have you on the show today. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Of course. Now, Cornelia, just tell us, um, let's start from the beginning. So where are you originally from and currently based? So I am originally from California. I was born in San Francisco, but raised more in Southern California, where I've lived for most of my life, although I did take about a 10-year stint where my husband and I decided, ah, let's try something different. And we lived all over the country. So I've lived uh, on the East Coast, in the Midwest, in the Southwest, in Arizona as well. And now I am back in California. Uh, I live in Santa Barbara, but I do consider San Francisco kind of my home as well, because being in tech, I spend a lot of time in the Valley. So Awesome. So you're in California. I absolutely love California. I was there just a couple months ago for Afrotech and I was in SF and it was, oh no, it was in Oakland, California. Um, and it was a blast. So yeah, I love California. So Cornelia, can you just kind of tell us about what has been your journey through technology, right? Starting from the earliest memory that you have, you know, what kind of exposed you to the industry? Yeah. So so my earliest memory is actually pretty fun. And I have to admit that I am extraordinarily lucky and I'm happy to share this story with all of your listeners because uh, I think that it is something that will resonate with a lot of them and hopefully even kind of maybe be a catalyst for young women in the way that they think about their career paths moving forward. So uh, to cut to the chase, when I was a, a sophomore in high school, and this was in the 1980, early, early 80s, 
at the end of my sophomore year, I was selecting my electives for the following year in school. So what were the things that weren't the required classes? What do I want to do? And I had a moment, I joke around, a moment of weakness where I signed up for computer programming class. So number one, this is a first example of why I'm so lucky because this was like 1981. And yes, my high school had a programming class on the, on the, um, in the catalog, which today still, believe it or not, there's so many high schools in the country that don't have that. Um, so that was you know, stroke of luck number one for me. Um, and then I went off and had just an awesome summer. And when I came back as a, my first day of junior year in high school and I got my schedule and I had indeed been placed in the computer programming class, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That was a moment of weakness. I am not doing that. I, I spent the summer at the beach and at the mall. I am way, way too cool for this computer stuff. I am not doing this. And I refused. And I went to the office and I told them you have to change my schedule. And stroke of luck number two, they said, well, if you want, at the end of week one, we'll change your schedule, but you have to go give it a try at first. And so I think I skipped class, I don't know, for a couple of days, and I finally went. <laughs> and I am sitting in the back of the class with my arms folded, you know, full of teenage attitude. And the teacher had written a four-line program on the board. And she stroke of luck number three, which actually I'm sure you know, um, it's it's gotten worse, not better. So oh. there were more of us back then than there are now, which is sad. We can riff on that later. But she said, you know, who wants to do this? And now the curiosity is getting the better of me because I had always loved, you know, like math and things like that. And so I, you know, kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, all right, you know, I'll give it a try, you know, still trying to pretend like I'm too cool for this. And I went over to the wall where we had the five computers that we had in the in the room. Um, they were TRS-80s for any of you listeners that are as old as me. Um, Radio Shack used to sell these things. And I sat down and I wrote out this four-line program. It was basic. It had line numbers. And after I typed it in, I typed the you know the three letters R-U-N, run, which is what we did to run our programs. And darn it, if the thing started counting on the screen, that's all it did was it just went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and kept going. And I went from no way to, oh, oh, wait, <laughs> wait, wait a second. This is cool. Yeah. And so literally in that instant, in that moment, everything changed for me. And that was the overall stroke of brilliance that, you know, brilliant luck that I've had in my life was I had that moment where I was like, oh, this is so for me. And that was it. That's how I got started. Wow. Never looked back. Yeah, that, that is so amazing. And I love how you talked about, right, these different moments of, you know, great luck that you had, right, that, yeah. you know, that just, you know, helped to build part of your story. But even the fact that your teacher was a woman, like, even now, like, Back when I was in school, when I went to Tuskegee University, I was so excited to have a woman who was my engineering teacher. Like even that was a big deal. So that is just that's yeah. that's literally phenomenal. And yeah, a huge amount of luck for sure. I mean, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that same year, come to think of it, my trigonometry teacher that year was a woman as well. And she was just a tremendous supporter. She celebrated, you know, when I got accepted to university, she celebrated it as much as anybody else. And so I guess, you know, I never even thought about that, that I had a female trig teacher as well. 
So both of those things surely helped. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And so, so from there, right. So you, now you have this, um, you know, this spark of exposure into technology. You're like, okay, there's something here and I want to be a part of that. Um, can you walk us through your journey of, okay, so that was in high school, I believe is what you said. And then yeah. now you're going off to college. Um, what kind of made you, um, you know, pick what major did you major in college and what college did you go to? Yeah. So I majored in computer science and I went to the closest four-year university to where I lived. And that's the only one that I applied to. Very, very different. I have a 24-year-old son and we went through, you know, a whole process to decide where he was going to apply and what he was going to do and SATs. And, you know, I sure I took the SAT, but it wasn't like I prepped it all. And um, so I went to Cal State University, Northridge. I was living in Thousand Oaks at the time. And so Northridge was about a 45-minute drive away. And, um, and that's where I went. And I majored in computer science. And um, I... The summer before I graduated, I, of course, had friends that were a little ahead of me in school, you know, behind me in school, and I had some that were already working in industry. And so the summer before I graduated, they said, hey, you should come and, you know, see about getting a summer job. And I did that, and I interviewed at um, an aerospace company in the San, San Fernando Valley. Back then, it was Hughes Aircraft. And, um, and I worked there for the summer today, we would call that an internship back then. I, we didn't really use that term. It was just, you know, a summer job and I worked there full time over the summer. And then when I did go back for my last year, I worked part-time, I continued on. And that is where I went to work full-time after I graduated. And at the time I was working in, um, image processing. And so I was doing algorithm development. So we were doing infrared imaging, imaging. And so we were doing things like I, I when I speak with with young people these days, I give them the analogy of, you know, when you take a photo of yourself, a selfie, and then you run it through some some filters or some things that, you know, make it look a little kind of edgy or, you know, finds the lines in, in the picture and things like that. Those were the algorithms that we were developing at the time. So we were taking these infrared images, so these heat images and we were looking for things like bridges and runways and roads. So we were doing edge detection and edge linking and then trying to, to come up with, you know, what the graphs looked like. And, and we did this, of course, in sequence. And so we were doing things like wanting to track targets or wanting to track things from frame to frame to frame. So we had a 30, literally had a 30th of a second to do edge detection and then link the edges that we found in one frame to the edges that we found in another frame to, to be able to correlate one from one frame to the other. So that's, that's where I started. And then I worked in aerospace for, um, I ended up going back to, to school. Um, I, my husband and I decided to take a stint out of California. And so we went back to school and I went to Indiana university. I started a PhD there. I never finished it. Um, but I, I, when I went there, I actually was planning on doing cognitive science and I got there and I fell in love with theoretical computer science. So this was a, yet another stroke of luck in, in, in my background in that Cal State Northridge, where I did my undergraduate, as I said, it was in the greater LA area. So it was a school that was very much focused on very pragmatic stuff. It was focused on getting students ready for industry 
all about teaching them in computer science different programming languages, software engineering skills, exactly those things that, that companies would want from a, from a graduate um, just coming out of school. When I went to Indiana University, it's very much more a research-oriented com- uh, organization, research-oriented university. And so there I had this great opportunity to study really kind of the theoretical, theoretical underpinnings of computer science. What, what is it about compilers that make it so that, you know, when you compile something, you know it's going to run and it's not going to blow up, um, you know, com- completeness, correctness, and those types of things. And that really helped me add a level of rigor to the way I act, the way that I, I work as a technologist. And so that combination of pragmatics and deep mathematical underpinnings, I think, has served me really well in my career. After leaving graduate school, went back into the workforce, made the move over to commercial, and initially started, I made the move from doing imaging for aerospace to doing Im- medical imaging. And then from there, just through connections, it wasn't really a technology connection, but it was through connections of people that I knew, made the move over, and this was in 1999, made the move over to a company that was doing web-based collaboration products. So many of the things that, again, your younger readership or listenership is going to be very familiar with, things like sharing documents or sharing images or having threaded discussions and all of those things that are quite ubiquitous in our social networking platforms didn't exist in the 1990s, you know, and at the end of the 90s. And so I worked for a company that was really kind of a market leader in that for for corporations. So we built tools for corporations to use to collaborate online went from there to content management through a number of acquisitions, actually. I, I took a job in 1999 and up until very recently hadn't resigned from a job in 20 years, but I worked at four different companies. So I was with a startup that got acquired. That company got acquired. That company did a spinoff. And um, and that spinoff was just in the process of getting acquired recently. Mm-hmm. And it, I, it, another opportunity was presented to me. And so I've moved to a different role. Um, and so I've spent my career uh, largely working on emerging technology, um, even from those early days of image processing. I've really focused on emerging technology. Uh, eventually, it became the web. Then it became the cloud, which I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about um, that as an emerging technology space um, and what we've done there. Um, and I've just been so, so blessed to have this extraordinarily interesting and intriguing and exciting career for the last 30 years or so. There are so, okay, there's so many questions and so many things that I have. And I'm so, you don't understand. This is literally, I'm just going to go ahead and say that this is like top three favorite episode. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out here. Um, and definitely top three favorite guests. So, okay, let's start talking about the cloud, right? So, um, you are the author of the book, Cloud Native Patterns, Designing Change Tolerant Software. So, you know, let's talk about cloud native patterns. And before we go into detail, can you just break down to our listenership, you know, the difference between the cloud and cloud native and what are they exactly in the real world? Because, you know, it seems like, you know, the cloud is coming and, you know, Amazon Web Services and all these different things. And we talk about Microsoft Azure. And, you know, these are terms that are very familiar to a lot of people. But what is this stuff exactly? Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and that can be very, very, very confusing. And I spend a lot of time with executives and companies, so people who aren't day-to-day down in the tech, technological weeds. And unpacking that is a, a really, really important thing. It's important for even you know those of us with boots on the ground. And so, I mean, at in a nutshell, the, the way that I like to characterize it, the simplest way to say it in 240 characters or less, is that the cloud is more about where and cloud native is more about how. And so the cloud, to a large extent, when we say the cloud, we mean the public cloud. We mean exactly those organizations that you just talked about. We mean Amazon with Amazon Web Services, Azure. We mean Google Cloud Platform, and then there's others like DigitalOcean. And even to some extent, organizations like Rackspace. Rackspace has been doing hosting of, you know, web web properties for a, a long time. And so to some extent, I guess if if I stay pure to that definition, we could say, well, Rackspace is, is the cloud as well, although it's a little bit more nuanced than that. When we get to cloud native, cloud native is where it's less about where you compute but it's about how you're constructing those solutions so that it works well in the more modern clouds. And that kind of gets to this nuance that I was talking about just now with AWS, Azure, Google. And then I kind of hesitated a little when I said Rackspace. And that is that you can certainly take something that you've been running for 20 years in your own data center and you can move it onto the cloud but that does not make it cloud native. It might still be the same architecture that we depended on for the last several decades, which is that architecture fundamentally depended on stable, unchanging infrastructure. It assumed that the infrastructure would be laid down and then kept stable. And if something went wrong, and my career has spanned this period, so Back in the days, part of you know those companies that I just briefly talked about, I worked for a company called Documentum. Documentum was applic- multi-tier application. One of the lowest tiers was Oracle. And if Oracle, and other databases eventually, but if Oracle or, or DB2 or something went down, we were able to throw up our hands and say, not our fault. Yeah. Documentum went down, but it wasn't our fault. And that was a reasonable explanation. And so there were companies like one of the companies that I also worked for was EMC, who built all sorts of intelligence into an infrastructure component. EMC in particular was storage, so that it really focused on making that infrastructure element super, super duper stable. So that stability wasn't something that needed to be worried about at the application tier. You just depended on the infrastructure to be stable. The cloud the modern cloud, so the AWSs and the GCPs and the Azures changed that equation. They said, look, we know in order to do distributed systems, in order to do this at scale, we and in order to do it with some of the other characteristics that we'll talk about, things like rapid feedback loops, constant upgrades, things like that, that we are going to, and, and this I'm sure was quite, quite alarming initially to start thinking about, well, we're going to provide infrastructure that doesn't give you the kinds of guarantees of stability that you had before. And therefore, 
cloud native applications have to adopt a little bit more of the responsibility for the stability of their software. And so cloud in a way is about where cloud native says, and by the way, even on AWS, you can take non-cloud native stuff and run it on EC2. And you are going to have, you know, those EC2, EC2 being, you know, virtualized servers, those don't have the kind of guarantees that you had before. So you do have to think about some other things. So you might find, in fact, that your software, if you move it to the cloud, is actually less stable because the infrastructure has different characteristics than it did when you were running things in your own data center. But cloud native is all about this, hey, I'm going to take responsibility for the infrastructure is going to be changing. It's going to be kind of this moving, shifting sand under my feet. And my application still needs to run. I can no longer throw my hands up in the air and say, hey, Amazon went down. Not my fault. So this was a great, yeah, I, I just love how you broke all of that down. You even talk about this a lot in your book, and we'll get into the specifics of that later, the importance of the cloud native and everything. But, you know, I'm curious to know what is the history right behind cloud native software and how has it evolved over time, right? So you talk about the importance of, you know, these business owners or these applications, you know, being able to scale and, you know, if things go down, we need to make sure that there is a process in place to ensure that we can go back online, essentially. So what, what's kind of the history behind cloud native and how it's evolved over time? Yeah, so whether it, whether it is 100% correct or not, I think a lot of people would agree with me that a good portion of the credit for this revolution goes to Google. And it's not only Google. Actually, it is these large-scale web properties, Google perhaps being one of the first, others being some of the ones we've already talked about, Amazon. So if you think about it, Google was its application. It, it didn't come being a cloud platform. It started by being search. And it was successful with search, so successful that it started to just grow and grow and grow. And now Google runs over 2 million physical servers across data centers all over the globe. Another example is Amazon. So I remember those days where Amazon was a bookseller. And when they started selling other things, we all thought they were nuts. But they ended up having this application that scaled to these volumes and needed to be deployed across the globe in order to work across you know, different geographies and provide good consumer experiences. So these were companies that wanted to bring new applications to a, a consumer base. And actually, they were building a consumer base that maybe didn't exist at that level. So they were, they, they were bringing a level of scale that I think most people probably hadn't anticipated. And in order to do so, they started grappling with all sorts of challenges. So challenges with, well, if I'm going to have that many servers, run that many servers, I had better utilize those servers at a higher level of utilization than most data center, you know, corporate data center servers are. I mean, I hear numbers like they have tons and tons of servers that are 10% utilized or 20% utilized. Well, can you imagine if if Google, who probably is, I'm guessing, is running around 70 to 80% utilization across those 2 million servers, if they were at 10 million, they'd need 
15 million servers. So yeah. in order to, to be able to solve the problem of utilization, they needed to start inventing some technologies and some approaches, not only technology, but approaches to being able to manage that. They're highly distributed. And so, and networks, you know, if, 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 you, if, if, you're, if you're listening and you haven't Googled the fallacies of distributed computing, please do so right now. Because we, we used to build, we used to have these expectations around, again, some of these infrastructure elements, including networks, where we're like, oh, well, we'll just assume the network is stable. There is no such thing as a network that's stable. So they had to start coming up with solutions to these problems. And in doing so, came up with approaches. Um, and again, some of those approaches were technological. Some of them were architectural decisions in their software. Some of them were practices. And in fact, when we start talking more about my book, I'll just give you know a little bit of a, a preview on that. The first three chapters of my book don't go into the patterns at all. They talk about all of those characteristics that, that are the things that as somebody who's building cloud-native software, you need to understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. Otherwise, you don't have a chance of, of, doing th of applying those patterns in the right way. So it's all of these things, in fact, that your, your question is so brilliant because it's those problems that these large web-scale applications were solving that were really the genesis of cloud-native. And then, of course, Amazon came along and said, you know, hey, we, we've gotten pretty good at, at providing this, this infrastructure to our own internal teams. Maybe other people, maybe there's a business in providing this for other organizations. And then Google has done the same. Most recently, they took Google Borg, which they wrote the white paper on Google Borg more than 10 years ago. Google Borg was kind of this platform that they had built internally to support cloud-native applications, all of their applications. And in the meantime, about five years ago, they took the concepts in Google Borg and recreated that in an open source instantiation that we call Kubernetes today, which of course is huge. Okay, so now let's get into your book, right? So you're talking about large-scale applications. You're talking about stability. And so in your book, you talk a lot about redundancy in software and how to ensure that the software infrastructure we develop is resilient and has the ability to adapt and change. Can you tell us about a time where you witnessed a cloud-native application that malfunctioned because of, you know, not following good cloud-native patterns? <laughs> we were just talking about Amazon, right? So the first four words in chapter one of my book are, it's not Amazon's fault. And what I did in there was I kicked off with an Amazon outage. It happened in September of 2015. And there's, I'll come back to that actually a little bit later on, I think in, in the conversation, but they had an outage where a whole region, and remember we were just talking about how Amazon and Google and others had to uh, deploy their applications all over the globe. And so they, they have these abstractions that they call regions and then another abstraction that they call availability zones, which kind of create these failure boundaries that represent these failure boundaries. And what happened in September of 2015 is that they had a regional outage. And I'll, I can tell you more later about what exactly caused that outage. Um, but basically what happened is that they had a regional outage and a whole bunch of, it's already, it's of course very well known now that a, 
significant applications run entirely on Amazon Web Services. And so companies like IMDb, if you're a mo movie goer, you know you spend time on IMDb. Nest, if you've got you know thermostats and things like that. Um, and Netflix, you know, who, who, who's in the United States at least, you know, pretty much everybody's using Netflix for, you know, for something. Those were all applications that were running on Amazon. And they all, because of this regional outage, experienced downtime. Now, the outage itself, Amazon's outage lasted about five or six hours. And therefore, the outage for some of these other companies like IMDb and Nest lasted even longer because when the Amazon infrastructure came back, they, of course, still needed time to get their applications back on that infrastructure. So some of these organizations had outages that lasted eight hours. Now, that there's all sorts of, I'm not an economist, but there's all sorts of analysis on the millions of dollars that that can cost a company if you even have a, a 10 minute downtime. So there were these companies that had these long downtimes. Well, Netflix, they, there's a great blog post and I refer to the blog post from, from my chapter where they said, shrug, yeah, we had a brief availability blip. That was word for word what they said in the, uh, the blog post. And so you look at that and you kind of chuckle and you say, well, is eight hours a brief availability blip? And of course it's not because that means real money for them. They literally were down minutes. They were running on this same region that these other organizations who experienced eight hour downtimes, they were running on that same infrastructure and they experienced a brief availability blip of a few minutes. And that right there demonstrates both a huge success and a huge failure in cloud native patterns. Now there's various degrees of the patterns. I have no doubt that IMDB and Nest were following some of the cloud native patterns. They probably were having redundancy of their services, so the actual compute instances that were you know, running parts of their application, they assuredly had redundancy, network redundancy um, you know, in, in places, storage redundancy. I'm sure they store everything at least three times for security and, and you know, reliability and those types of things. What they hadn't done though, was that they hadn't applied the redundancy across the failure boundaries. So they had put everything into a single region. And that's the difference between those companies and Netflix. Netflix had taken that redundancy all the way across, had analyzed the failure boundaries and had ensured that the redundancy went across those failure boundaries. So that when one region went down, they were able to very quickly have all of their traffic get shifted to another region. Now, it may have slowed down things a little bit, but at right. least they weren't down. Interesting. So Netflix, okay, they took a completely different route. Um, that makes so much sense. Okay, guys, so we're going to take a super quick break, and we'll be back with Cornelia Davis. 
Hey guys, the Women in Tech with Ariana Blazing Trails podcast series is sponsored by Manny Publications Company. Today, Manny would like to give away five free coupon codes for you to access Cornelia's book, Cloud Native Patterns. If you're interested in learning more about the cloud native patterns and how to develop strong applications that thrive in the dynamic, distributed, virtual world of the cloud, then this book is exactly for you. Click the link below in the app or website you're using to listen to this podcast, and you will find the five free discount codes for you to access a free copy of their book or you can go to huawei.tech.com slash resources okay guys we are back with cornelia davis the cto of weworks so cornelia we're going to go on to our next question you know what are some of we talked about some mistakes right that companies make when it talk when we're talking about you know cloud native patterns and you know what's the best way to set up your large-scale applications so what are some of the most common factors i'm curious to know for why it's so difficult to deploy software and keep it running well in production? And what are some ways to overcome them? Uh, so, so that is a really fantastic question. There are, I've spent most of at least the last decade working with large enterprises. So these are the, you know, the, the large insurance companies, the large financial services companies, the telco providers, and all of those folks um, who are running, you know, they, their whole business runs on these technology. And there's really a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that when I mention things like financial services or insurance or telco, when you think about that, the first thing that probably, even if it doesn't spring consciously to mind, you, you start to get this kind of like uneasy thing in the pit of your stomach, which is like, oh, that's like regulatory stuff. I... You know, we hear about the Capital One breach or even in retail, we hear about the Target breach or the Home Depot breach or something like that. And, oh, my gosh, these large organizations, they have a significant responsibility to keep um, and even we can always go all go all the way to Facebook, right, without getting political or anything like that. They have a tremendous responsibility to protect consumer data and all of those types of things. So there's a whole host of things that these organizations have created um, uh, patterns and practices around to ensure that nothing ever goes wrong from a, from a security and regulatory compliance. Now, it's funny, I didn't intentionally say it that way, but to ensure that nothing ever goes wrong, well, that's like a, like, just like the fallacies of you know, distributed computing. The whole point is that we know that we cannot ever make sure that nothing ever goes wrong. Um, and that get, takes me to my second point, which is that that's the approach that we have taken when we think about deploying software into production and keeping it running, is that we think of stability as the most, most important thing. Now, I want to touch base back on both of those, those, I want to drill into both of those elements in a little bit more detail. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to, I want to emphasize the fact that I think that aiming for zero security breaches is absolutely what we should be doing. But we also need to be very aware of the fact that there, there are likely going to be incidents and it, we're we're in a better posture if we also focus on what do we do when something bad happens, which kind of takes me back to the other point. The other point, so that, that point about what do we do when something bad happens, 
we need to think about that from a security and compliance perspective, but even just from a stability and reliability perspective, that's something that's really key. So let me drill in on that a little bit more. It goes back even, we can go back to the example that we've just been talking about, which is Netflix weathering the storm far better than some of these other organizations. Part of it is because they already had anticipated and had created that redundancy across these failure domains. But they didn't, another important thing, the reason that they got that right was because they practiced it. They actually practiced killing things. They practiced having, they, they of course didn't go and take an Amazon region down, but they simulated an Amazon region going down by cutting off that part of the network and testing those things to make sure that they had the backup plan working and in place. I sometimes call those safety nets. And so this is a, a fundamental shift is from this idea of, well, my aim, before I go into production, my aim is to ensure that nothing is gonna go wrong when I go into production, is very different from a mindset that says, I know things are gonna go wrong in production, I'm not gonna be haphazard about it. I'm going to do my best to make sure that nothing happens, but I'm actually gonna focus as much on the safety nets as I am on making sure that things are gonna go right. And that is incredibly important. So we sometimes hear these stories about, um, Facebook for some reason is one that always comes to, to mind where a new developer coming into Facebook pushes code into production on their very first day on the job. Right. Now, in a way, as, as that first-time developer, you might be kind of like petrified, like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take down Facebook because right. I have some bug in my software. But you're actually okay doing that because they have the safety nets in place so that if you do push a bug into production, they can unwind that very, very quickly. So they put as much focus on the safety nets as they do the actual software itself. That is awesome, Cornelia, um, talking about, you know, the importance of these safety nets, right? Especially as developers, I think, you know, I remember when I first started, right, in software and I was learning C Sharp, you know, the goal was always just to complete the homework, complete the project, you know, build the solution and make something pop up on the screen. But as you, you know, go to more enterprise level software and start developing those types of things, you do have to think about, okay, if someone were to break this or if there is a user, first time user um, who comes onto the site or logs onto the application, you know, what is it that they can do wrong and how can I make it better for them as an experience, but also, you know, prevent bugs and stuff. So I'm glad that you touched on that. That's so important yeah. for developers. Yeah. Now, Cornelia, I'm curious, what kind of technology is essential to cloud native platforms, right? Like what are some of the core pieces of cloud native? Ah, uh, another another really great question. Um, but before I, I actually answer that question, because I think the answer to the question is is more interesting when we step back and we, again, kind of address the goals. So we haven't talked about the goals of cloud native software quite as directly as I want to just yet in the context of this question. We've, we've, we've touched upon it. We've alluded to it. You know, you never go down. The software never goes down. We're resilient. We're secure you know, all of those types of things. Um, but when we when we back that up, 
when we, we both back up and we relate it a little bit more closely to the software itself, what I want to do is take a look at some of those goals. Now, some of those goals are things like agility. So we were just, for example, talking about safety nets and we talked about the Facebook developer who's pushing code into production on their first day. Um, I don't know the stats for Facebook as well, but I'm betting it's comparable to what it is for Amazon. Amazon is now known for pushing um, code into production, doing a release into production on average every second of every day of the year. That's how many releases they do. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, you might think, well, why? What's the benefit? What's the business benefit of that? And here I want to I want to bring um, a, a body of work to the attention of your readership that I think is so incredibly crucial. There's an organization called, it, the acronym is DORA. It is the DevOps Research Assessment Organization. It's an organization that was founded by three of my industry colleagues, Nicole, Nicole Forsgren, Jez Humble, and Jean Kim. Jean actually wrote the foreword to my book. I work very closely with Jean on a number of, of projects. And what they did in DORA, so DORA is the organization that releases every year the State of the DevOps Report. And what they have done in this body of work is they have studied organizations, categorized them from high-performing to low-performing. And the metrics that they used for to do that categorization are the ones exactly the ones that you would expect. Higher performing organizations are more profitable, have a higher return on investment, pro- produce higher shareholder value, um, et cetera, et cetera, and, the, and increasing market share and so on. And the lower performing organizations are the ones that are losing market share, that are not profitable or not as profitable as they were in the past and so on. And then they took certain behaviors, certain attributes of IT systems, and they did data analysis. They didn't do this analysis themselves and try to come up with these correlations. They actually took a whole bunch of data and they ran some of the, you know, the, the, the data science algorithms against it and looked for patterns that correlated between these, the higher to lower performing organizations. And that's the body of work that they put out in the state of the DevOps report. And they have found five markers that correlate, that can be predictors of high to low performing organizations. And those, th- those include things like the time between code being ready to go into production and the time that it actually hits production. The shorter that time, the more likely you are to be a higher performing organization. How frequently you deploy, the more frequently you deploy, the more likely you're you're to be a higher performing organization. it's, It's extraordinarily interesting. Wow. Change failure rates. So we were just talking about the risk, you know, why do people, why is it so hard to de- deploy code into production? Well, a lot of times that is what brings systems down. And in fact, that Amazon outage that we talked about earlier followed a new release of some software into the a- Amazon landscape. So deploying new software often is the reason why we have failures. So reducing that change failure rate, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like these five, five markers. 
So if we start with those markers and we say, okay, you know, Nicole and her team have done this work to say, these are the, the behaviors that we want to support. Then what are the technologies that support these behaviors, support frequent deploys, support lower change failures? The next one is mean time to recovery. So if I do have a failure, how, how can I shorten the time where I can get back into a working state? And so if we look at that then, there's really kind of, I would say, three fundamental things. There's, of course, more nuanced things. But the most techie part of that, I would say, is to start with containers. And so, of course, as an industry, we're container happy. And everybody talks about containers. Everybody's talking about using containers. And a lot of times, quite frankly, people are using containers and they don't necessarily know exactly what the benefits are going to be. Um, and, and that's really why I wanted to couch it this way. Containers really give you a couple of benefits tying back to those, those um, examples. One thing is that containers allow you to create what's called a container image. And that container image is kind of a self-contained bundle that has all sorts of dependencies and has all sorts of um, practices implicitly already bundled into that container image. And that was that allows us to take some of the processes that we used to do once the code was complete, and now it was going to take us six weeks to go into production. Well, that was because we had to go through regulatory checks and compliance checks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we can do that earlier and do that as a part of the process of creating the container image, then the deployment of the container image becomes much quicker. It shortens that lead time. So that goes back to that first metric that we talked about, shortens the lead time. And because of the work that Nicole and team have done, we know that shortened lead time generates better business outcomes. So we have that. The other thing that containers do is it goes back to um, something that I mentioned earlier. It's the utilization of infrastructure. So we can bin pack, we can pack more things onto a machine if we're packing these containers. And there's all sorts of stuff around there. I'll, I'll, I'll save you all the, the, the narratives around you know, containers in the shipping industry, but the analog is, is very, very valid there. Um, and it also containers provision very quickly and they can be, they, they can provision very quickly. So if something goes wrong with a container, and we need to provision the previous one because that one was working without a problem, well, it's almost in instantaneous. We can roll back so that that mean time to recovery is supported by these rapid provisioning of these containers. And because the image already has a lot of the work done in it, that supports the mean time to recovery as well. So does that make sense? Kind of how containers actually provide all sorts of elements that provide support for these behaviors that we know map to positive business outcomes. No, yeah, that makes complete sense, Cornelia. And, you know, I'm curious to know, um, because I, of course I did some reading and stuff throughout your book, but I know that you talked about, you know, the support of constantly changing, right? Also being an essential piece to cloud native platforms. Do you mind dibbling and dabbling into that for our, some of our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And so, 
So we can go back actually to the example of, we talked earlier about um, a um, the, the Amazon outage, yeah. but that was kind of a, a dramatic and extreme example. Um, and sure, that outage represents a change and a change that Netflix was ready for and they were able to weather. But that's actually the exception, not the rule. There are changes that are happening constantly. Now, I already mentioned some of those. Amazon releases software into their environment on average every second of every day. That every single one of those deployments is a change. And all of those, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that in, certainly the whole of Amazon.com doesn't get released every second of every day. But on one day, the image serving service, so the thing that allows me to go and take a look at the images of the products that are being offered on Amazon.com, that might get released on average every six weeks or something like that. The search service gets released every four weeks. The, the uh, recommendation engine, well, that one's probably getting tweaks almost many times a day because they're constantly optimizing the algorithms that provide the right recommendations to increase, quite frankly, what we all buy that we may or may not need. <laughs> um, so those, and, but all of those things, when you and I are browsing Amazon.com, those things are all part of my Amazon.com experience. So they're all related to one another. So a release of the recommendation engine might actually impact the imaging service in some ways. So there's constant software releases. The other thing is we touched upon things like security earlier. Yeah. Security, a big part of what we need to do in IT environments from a security perspective is obviously put in, in place good practices for um, private information, PCI data, and those types of things. But it's addressing all of the vulnerabilities that are constantly being found across the IT landscape. Vulnerabilities in operating systems, vulnerabilities in runtime packages like the JDK or the .NET framework, those types of things. And now, when we think about an operating system vulnerability, if I'm an application developer, do I need to be called in every single time an operating system vulnerability is patched at the infrastructure level? Absolutely not. That would take one of those metrics that we talked about, the yeah. ability to release frequently, yeah. it, it would just blow it out of the water. If I had to be involved in every one of those, I wouldn't be able to release my features and, and those types of things. And so what we need to do, and this is kind of another technological element that's really crucial to supporting cloud native patterns, and that's platforms. And so platforms are the things that enable you, that give you a surface area with which you can work on that infrastructure and continue to evolve the infrastructure, do things like patch management, do things, apply certain patterns that get rid of malware if, it, if it's made its way into the infrastructure. Uh, we sometimes call that repaving. So actually intentionally shutting down systems and restarting them in a fresh environment yeah. so that if there was malware, it's gone now. If there wasn't, okay, no biggie. There still isn't, right? And so the platforms enable us kind of a surface area where we can deal with those infrastructure concerns. But what that means is that 
that infrastructure again is constantly shifting out from shifting around under the feet of the applications that are riding on top of it. And so those applications have to be written in such a way that they can tolerate. That's why I almost like the subtitle of my book better than the title, which is um, change tolerant software, supporting change tolerant software, because that's really what it's all about is just, we know now we used to, again, we used to think, Oh, we're going to, we're going to try to make things not change and write my software to, to depend on that. We've completely turned that on its head and said, okay, we're going to acknowledge that things are always changing and I still need to be able to operate in that environment. Interesting. Now, this is so, this is great. Now, Cornelia, let's kind of make a switch, right? And let's talk about, you know, your career, right? So currently you, you are the chief technology officer of WeaveWorks. Can you tell us about what is WeaveWorks and um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that I'll do is I'll emphasize some syllables. Um, we are not WeWork. We are work. yes, <laughs> works. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and people get that confused. My my dear father is ninety years old, and when I told him I was going to work for WeaveWorks, he said, "Oh, I've heard of them." And I said, "No, no, you haven't. <laughs> it's not WeWork. It's WeaveWorks." Um, so WeaveWorks is a startup. Um, we're about sixty-five people strong. Uh, our founders, um, Alexis Richardson and Matthias Robstock, were also the founders of RabbitMQ. So many of your listeners probably have experience with RabbitMQ messaging. It's a messaging technology, JMS messaging technology that is still to this day extremely popular and is used across financial services and lots of other verticals out there. Um, and what we do at WeaveWorks is we actually work on platform. So that last emphasis that I just had around platforms that enable these rapid application delivery, development and delivery and resilient operational practices, we work on a set of tools and practices around that. Now, what we do in specific is that we address, um, I've been alluding, I haven't been super crisp about it yet, but technology is part of the solution. And certainly things like containers and platforms, and I already mentioned Kubernetes earlier. So Kubernetes is a, 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 an extraordinarily popular platform um, that is going to see even more widespread adoption over the course of the next five to 10 years. It's going to be, it's, it's almost ubiquitous already. It certainly will be in production within the next few years. Um, but there's still a lot of practices that are layered around that. Um, practices that say, okay, well, if the application teams are doing this delivery and the platform teams are patching the operating systems, how do those two different organizations and those two different personas, how do they choreograph their efforts? How do they dance together? What is the contract between those personas? Part of that contract is in fact APIs. So it's, you know, what's the self-service contract for an application team being able to get to launch a container? But part of that also is just kind of the operational practices around that. Now, in software development, those practices have been codified in technology over the course of the last 20 
or more years. We sometimes call that continuous integration. It's those pipelines. You check in code into Git, for example, or any other source code repository, and Jenkins or a similar pipelining tool says, ah, I see there's a new check-in. I'm gonna provision a little environment. I'm gonna check out that code. I'm gonna build the code. I'm gonna run through the, the unit tests. I'm gonna bring it together with some other components. I'm gonna run some integration tests, and then I'm gonna show you on a dashboard whether this thing is green or red. And you're gonna get immediate feedback on whether your check-in worked or not. Those, so, so on the software development side, we've taken what used to be practices and we have really made them kind of robot driven, if you will. We have codified those into code. We are further behind on that when it comes to software delivery and software operations. Oftentimes we, we, we make a very big mistake, what I believe is a very big mistake in that we say CICD, continuous integration, continuous delivery. And we say that CICD almost like it's a singular concept. The truth of the matter is that we as an industry have really gotten very good at CI. We're in the early days of CD, of that continuous delivery and continuous operations. So if we go all the way back to that Netflix example, yeah. where I said they practice, well, they themselves came up with what those practices were. They themselves codified, created technology to implement those practices that allowed them to practice region failures and availability zone failures and network failures and all sorts of other failures. They created that themselves. At Weaveworks, we are very much focused in that software delivery and operations and codifying that. And we are borrowing from a lot of the success that has happened in the CI space. Yeah. And we have coined, our, our founder, Alexis, coined the term GitOps. Huh. And what that does is it really kind of honors this success that we've had in CI, which says you do a Git commit and all sorts of good things happen. We want to apply that same philosophy, that same thinking to you, you use Git to not just keep track of your source code, but to keep track of what your deployments look like, what your operational characteristics are. You put those in a GitHub repository or another repository of choice. And then we have all sorts of intelligence, all sorts of codification of the operational practices that used to be done, quite frankly, and still today are mostly done by hand or through bespoke bespoke um, scripting and come up with a codified operational model around that. And that's what we do with both. We're very much an open source based company. We've got a dozen or more open source, very, very popular open source projects that are in this space, as well as commercial products. The Weave Kubernetes platform is um, our, our commercial product that is in that space that is really targeted at the large enterprises that we've been talking about. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Cornelia. And can you walk us through, like, what's the average day in the life of a CTO? <laughs> so it is so fun. <laughs> I, I just, I, I, you know, I have a blast literally every day. Oh. And 
some of it I think won't, won't come as a surprise um, to you or to your listeners is that as the chief technology officer, I am the person who's responsible for making sure that we as a company have created and understand, um, and I'm ultimately responsible for putting down on paper what our technical strategy is and relating that technical strategy both to the business outcomes that our customers want. So we did a little bit of that earlier when we were talking about Dora and, and you know following that chain from business outcomes all the way to technology, as well as ensuring that that goes all the way down to the actual things that we're building in our open source projects and in our commercial products. So that's fundamentally what I'm most responsible for. And to that end, I spend a lot of time. Um, this is an emerging technology space. I've spent, I've been so blessed to spend most of my career in emerging technology spaces. What that means is that I spend a lot of time with my internal colleagues, as well as even more time with my industry colleagues. And my industry colleagues take the form of customers or potential customers, uh, open source collaborators, partners. So at WeaveWorks, we partner a great deal with Amazon and Microsoft and various other partners in the community. Um, I also spend a great deal of time with our marketing organization because as we are working in these emerging technology spaces, I like to say that when I'm working with my customers and partners, we're co-inventing. We're figuring this stuff out together. Right. And then figuring out how to articulate that in such a way that we can actually start to build a market around it and get repeatability and predictability around this is something that I, I work with our, our marketing organization as well. Um, and so technology, of course, is at the center, but um, I believe that that as chief technology officer, I'm not just a propeller head. I, I, I have to relate that back to business concerns and market drivers and even competitive drivers and, and opportunistic drivers. So the existence of Kubernetes and the popularity of Kubernetes has provided so much opportunity for us and many, many other organizations. And so being able to respond to that. Um, and then, you know, to, to, of course, I spend time with our R&D. Just last night, I was the very first person to take our brand new release candidate and get it deployed. And because I wanted to see, you know, what are our latest capabilities and how is this, what's the, the user experience going to be like? And, and where are the, you know, maybe subtle nuggets that we haven't dialed up or maybe we need to dial something else back? And how does that relate to the technical strategy? And you know, what I'm hearing from, you know, I was in a partner meeting earlier this week, and I'm always taking the latest, greatest conversations and relating it back to what are we releasing today. So I still get to play with tech. And, you know, I was in my IDE and using Vim and all of that stuff um, and doing kubectl applies and, and those things. Um, but then, especially in, in an organization like Weave, where we're relatively small, is that, um, as, as, a, as a leader in the organization, I am also very, very much um, concerned with and I believe responsible for company culture. Yeah. So I spend time with, with my, my colleagues, my peers, uh, the other leaders in the organization to ensure that we are creating an organization that is a fun place to work um, because we know that engaged employees are happy employees 
generate much better, much better stuff that we are generating a, um, an environment where people, where we have diversity of viewpoint and, uh, people feel embraced and included in everything. And so I spend a great, great deal of time and kind of personal, you know, my heart's in a lot of that is in there. And I sometimes say that that's the most important work that I do in not only within Weave, but within the industry is to work on particularly, you know, Ariana, you and I are both technology, female technologists. Um, I think that is some of the most important work that I do is to uh, address diversity and inclusion in the industry, or uh, sadly, in many cases, the lack thereof. That is, and thank you for mentioning, because that literally goes to my next question of like, you know, there's so many women who are listening to this show, right? And they, some of them are transitioning into technology. Some of them have been into tech since the 80s. And some of them, you know, have, you know, been in it for less than a decade. And so, but the common question between all three is always, you know, how do I navigate this industry as a woman, right? Like I'm going into a room, I'm doing a presentation, and I'm the only person, right, in the room who looks like me. And so, what advice do you have for women who are navigating technology and even trying to reach the C-level executive status? I think that the the number one thing, and I didn't necessarily think this earlier, but just the context of the conversation and the, and the, the great way that you asked that question, is that number one, I think it's really, really important that we as women in the space understand the research, understand some of the very specific things that the researchers have been able to understand about the dynamic that happens in the industry. And what, to some extent, what I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little less obtuse now and be a little bit more direct. And that is that I think that the biggest challenge that we face is that, is that of stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. And now the first thing that I, I always like to say, and another word for stereotypes is implicit bias. That's kind of been a word that we've been throwing around for the last, you know, half a dozen years or so to a great extent. And the first thing I'll say is that every single one of us have implicit biases and they're completely normal and you shouldn't be ashamed of them. Um, because we get so much data, you know, a little bit of the, the, the research is, you know, we get so much data coming at us every single day that the only way that we can function is by categorizing. And those categories are sometimes fair and they're sometimes unfair. And, um, and the challenge that we as women face in the industry is that a lot of those stereotypes that we have around women are very unfair and put us into a a disadvantaged position, position to be working in this industry. So for example, one of the most canonical examples is that um, one of the stereotypes is that women are just better communicators and that they're kinder. Right. And so, and whether that's true or not, I think at a broad swath in many cases, it probably isn't a bad stereotype. It, it, you know, at, at a very general sense, it's probably true. But the way that that becomes unfair for us is that if we are direct, then we are perceived to be unkind. And yeah. if a man is direct, that's just expected. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so going back to my first piece of advice is do some reading, 
listen to listen to you know materials out there. Go on TED Talks. There's great TED Talks on the subjects. Google has done a great job. Google has some really great videos because they have some super people that are working on this this topic within Google. Um, and there's some great videos out there as well. Is get yourself informed on what some of these dynamics are. Once you're informed, then you can make the decision. Then you can start to make the decision and you can start to experiment with what your personal style is on how you deal with some of these things that just exist in the environment. So one person might, one woman might say, you know what? My response to that is to call bullshit on it. And I'm just going to be direct and I'm going to call anyone out who, yeah. who says, you know, you're being unkind. Oh. I'm going to call them out and say, no, you're projecting a stereotype on me. That's not fair. But some other people might not feel comfortable doing that. So I, for example, I'm about middle of the road. I'm not somebody who's going to, particularly in a new environment, start to call people out right away. That's just not my style. Yeah. And so my personal decision on some of that is to occasionally use verbiage and present my case in a way that doesn't challenge the stereotypes that they probably have of me initially. And then progressively get closer and closer to the not worry about it. Now, that's a decision that I've made. It takes additional effort from me. It it redirects some of the energy that in all fairness, I'd rather put somewhere else. Yeah. But it's it's something that's worked for me. And that's a decision that I've made based on my personality and I experiment with it all the time. And it also depends who I'm working with. If I'm working with colleagues that I'm very, very comfortable with and I see them, you know, a, a behavior that's that's basically seated in this in an unfair stereotype, I might say, hey, 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 you know, <laughs> wa watch that. Get it but, yeah. <laughs> but if I'm if I'm engaging with a, a CEO of some company for the first time and they're it's a sales pursuit i might not call them out right away and that's okay yeah yeah and i like that you talk and that's the reality right like there are situations where you know you won't always be able to you know slap someone on the hand or, or call it out in the moment and so it's important to understand right like pick what battle you want to fight in that moment and in the context because sometimes you know it's the moment to speak up and other times it's not and maybe you can circle back on that or even send an email so if that's someone you know if there's someone right now listening to you know the podcast and you're going through that situation just understand that you know in the moment you know how and also different people respond to uh you know, these types of situations differently, right? So there have been moments where I have had to call someone out in the moment because they said something that, you know, like one gentleman, he asked me, it, it was so insane. I was talking, telling him how I'm a software developer. I'm the CTO of a cannabis tech company and all this good stuff. And then he goes and he looks at me and he says, well, you just don't look like a CTO. And I'm just like, well, what does a CTO look like? Right. So that was the perfect moment yeah. for me to teach him a lesson on his implicit bias or straightforward bias. <laughs> right. Um, and so but there have also been other moments where someone has said something. and I'm like, you know what? 
I don't have time to pick this battle right now because we only have 20 more minutes in this, you know, this presentation. And I really need to like get this deal closed so I can move on to the next thing. So I'm glad that you mentioned that, Cornelia. Now we're on to our last question. Ariana, if I could uh, chime yeah. in, I, I want to, you said something about circling back. And that is something that I wanted to, to add to because I think that that's extremely valuable. And there's a specific thing, a specific technique that I wish that I had had some kind of, you know, understanding of far, far earlier in my career. And that is that sometimes when you've had a chance to reflect and you circle back, you don't have to go it alone. Yeah. So, yeah. so what I've often started doing, and it's just been in the last few years, is that I will leverage an ally, a close colleague, a man or a woman, and say, hey, did you notice this dynamic? And that dynamic is serving me poorly in the following way, me or a, you know, a group of us or something like that. Could I have your support in when this is happening moving forward? Can we use different terminology or can we not call it Ed's idea and instead call it the group's idea? You know, those types of things. And I think that that's a specific technique that has served me very, very well since I discovered it. Thank you. I, you know, I've actually, now that I'm reflecting, I don't think I've ever tried that technique. So next time I'm definitely going to try that. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. That is really good. And so Cornelia, we're on to our last question. This has been like an absolute blast. I know I've said that already, but you know, you just have so much to share and so much experience and this is awesome. And I'm sure our listeners have truly enjoyed this episode. But the last question I want to ask you is what is one thing in your life right now that you're excited about and passionate about? Um, so, so I love tech and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I spend a yeah. lot of time. It's, it's like my hobby. And so it never feels like work for me. Um, but, uh, beyond that, um, there's a couple of things. The first thing is that I, I've already mentioned my son, I think earlier. So my family, I have a, an absolutely wonderful husband and I have one child, a son who graduated from college uh, just about two years ago. And last summer, he took a gap year where I, if you have the ability to do that, fabulous. Um, we re recognize very much how he was in a position of privilege to be able to take a year and travel all over the world. And, and that was really fantastic. So about a year ago, he started his career and he's a software engineer. So I am a very happy mama. So he is the center of my universe has been since the, you know, the moment he was conceived. And um, it's so, it's so, so fun to be able to talk tech with him. Um, but the other thing that we share is that we share a love for being active. And um, I consider myself a little bit of an athlete. My son is a, is a, is a hardcore athlete. He has been his whole life. He, uh, he ran, he was a distance runner all the way through college and now is competing in CrossFit which is a new, so my husband and I, we were always the groupie parents. And for those of you who are listening, here's some unsolicited advice for you. Being the groupie parents has served us so extraordinarily well. We were always the parents who drove the school van to all the track meets, who chaperoned the team and high altitude training in the summer and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and just last weekend for, for Super Bowl Sunday, we had about 20 of Max's friends from high school and college that came to our house and swore that they were going to be coming for the next several decades for Super Bowl Sunday. So we really, you know, are, we were so blessed that we get to be part of their lives. 
but we've we've always embraced as athletics and we love it. We love being kind of the groupie parents. And so I've been learning about CrossFit and learning about the uniqueness that is that. And in a few weeks, we're going to be going to Miami for a competition for him. And so that's a big part of my universe. Um, that's yeah, that that and then I love to cook. And in my particular thing with cooking is that um, uh, we, my whole family is gluten intolerant, oh. uh, myself included. And so ah. I do everything gluten free and in many cases, dairy free as well. So that's a, another big hobby of mine. Oh, that is so fun. OK, last last absolute question. What's your favorite gluten free meal to cook? So I do like. I do get a big kick out of baking gluten-free because that's the one that's hard. I mean, it's not hard to do a gluten-free Italian meal because you can buy really, really good gluten-free pasta now. And so you just use gluten-free pasta instead of glutinous pasta. Um, but baking is something where I have, my son has been gluten-free since he was two. So for nearly 23 years and back then the gluten-free, I, I was figuring it out on my own. And uh, I dare say that I can bake up in a, a pretty mean, you know, chocolate cake. You know, uh, I, I do this chocolate cake that has, I also am very health conscious. Um, and so I don't use any refined sugar. So I do this like really mean, uh, like red velvet chocolate bunt cake that is, that has red beets in it for part of the sweetener. And it, it kicks butt. It is so good. And so learning how, and it took me a while. It certainly wasn't this good in the beginning, but yeah. being able to, to bake a heck of a chocolate, you know, death by chocolate cake, um, <laughs> gluten-free, that's probably my favorite. This is awesome. Well, Cornelia, you have been such a blast on the show. I know that the listeners um, have had such a great experience just listening to you and all of your experience. And I just can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you so much. It has been such a delight to chat with you. Thank you. Awesome. And you guys, this is Ariana Waller. I'm signing out next week. I can't wait to get back to you guys. This month is Women's History Month. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to hit to subscribe and I'll talk to you guys next week.